I'm your inner dream monologue and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with... Kevin Wilson, author of Nothing to See Here. And writing for me is the way to like take that stuff that's kind of in my head and causing me trouble and simply put it on the page means that it's outside of me for just a second. And if it's outside of me, then I can touch it, right? And I can use my hands to make it what I want it to be. We'll be back with Kevin Wilson in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. 
And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Kevin Wilson, author of the short story collections, Tunneling to the Center of the Earth, and Baby, You're Gonna Be Mine, and the novels, The Perfect Little World, The Family Fang, and Nothing to See Here. He lives in Suwanee, Tennessee, and is an associate professor in the English department at Suwanee, the University of the South. His novel, Nothing to See Here, tells the story of Lillian, who once earned a prestigious scholarship to an elite boarding school, only to be expelled for a scandal involving her roommate, Madison. Now, in her late 20s, Lillian is living a lackluster life working at a grocery store and not living up to her full potential. One day, she receives a letter from Madison pleading for help. Lillian arrives at Madison's mansion to discover her old friend wants her to serve as a nanny for her two stepchildren, who happen to have a unique affliction. They burst into flames when they get upset or scared. Lillian takes on the assignment while Madison and her senator husband continue to seek power in national politics. As Lillian forges a professional and then personal relationship with the combusting twins, she learns she may need them as much as they need her. Kevin Wilson has written about siblings before. In his novel The Family Fang, he wrote about a brother and sister who unwillingly star in their parents' performance art projects. We began the discussion talking about the film version of The Family Fang and a scene where the now-grown son visits a school to talk about why he writes. I asked Kevin Wilson to share more about the speech his character made to the kids. Yeah, so in the in the book, The Family Fang, Buster is a writer, and he's a writer who's basically wrote a good first novel, and the second novel was really difficult and failed, and, and nobody liked it. And so he's living back with his parents in this school where he used to go wants him to come talk. And so he does, and I think he's really struggling. You know, they're asking him, like, how does he write? And he's like, well, I like to chew gum, you know, and they're, they're like, that's not really what we want. And so then he finally starts to think about, like, do you have, do you ever have these kind of thoughts, like these scary thoughts? Then with writing, the inclination is, is not to, like, move away from those thoughts, but to dig into them, to take it as far as you can. So if this bad thing happens to you and your sister, where do you go from there? Like, so then you have to, your parents die, so you move in with your aunt and uncle, and your aunt and uncle are terrible to you, and then this, and then this, and then this, and and as you make up that narrative, as you write your way, even when it's bad, um, to me, what you're writing towards, and I think with Buster, is you're you're writing to try to find the light, right? You're trying to find that place where, after all of this, you end up in a place that was better than when you started. Um, and for me, that's what writing is. I have so many, like, I don't want to pretend like I'm super dark or anything, but I just have bad thoughts all the time, you know, and they're they're difficult to process and they're really hard in the present moment because they hit me and nobody, like, obviously, like, people don't know what's going on, but it's really destabilizing for me. And I have to kind of pull down inside of myself to try to reorient myself. And writing for me is the way to, like, take that stuff that's kind of in my head and causing me trouble and simply put it on the page means that it's outside of me for just a second. And if it's outside of me, then I can touch it, right? And I can use my hands to make it what I want it to be and take it all the way to the end. And and what I'm always trying to do with those things is to figure out how can I take that dark thing in me 
and find my way to to something that will that will sustain me that will that will save me so i don't know i feel like at some point maybe that that reason for writing will change but it hasn't yet i mean still for me it's just working through what's inside of me so that i can have it out on the page right and and you were diagnosed in adulthood i think with tourette syndrome which sort of gave a name to these bad thoughts Mm-hmm. And I've heard you say that writing saved you. And I'm wondering if you would trade that to not have the thoughts. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, certainly. So like as a kid, as a teenager, I went to see a therapist and they thought, you know, it was definitely anxiety. Um, and they thought maybe OCD. And so then I went to McLean and in in Massachusetts and they were like I don't think this is it might be OCD but we think it might be something else and that's then I went to see a neurologist and they're like it's it's Tourette's and just again like what's been weird about talking about this stuff is that I've been getting so many emails where where a lot of people are like you've been misdiagnosed it's definitely not that it's this but every person says it's something different you know, someone's like, it's harm OCD. Other people say it's your histamines. Other people say this. And, and that's really helpful, but overwhelming. And for me, when they said Tourette's, I didn't, it wasn't even necessarily that it was correct. I just needed something so that then I could figure out how to, how to live with it, like how to make sense of it. So it was just reassuring to have a name to it. Um, And so once that kind of happen, you know, I think when I was younger and I was just anxious and had no name for it, I would have loved to have gotten rid of it. But um, recently, like last year, actually, this this boy who I had met at a reading where I had talked about this stuff, like these, these unwanted thoughts, he wrote me just kind of out of the blue and was like, I'm actually working with this psychiatrist um, and he has developed these ways of dealing with Tourette's and unwanted thoughts it's it's a it's a new kind of therapy and we would love for you to take part in it and and I just never wrote him back because I mean at that point I'm 41 years old and it's one of those things like I just don't know what I would do if it wasn't there anymore like I kind of just know how to live with it and I kind of it's not that I want it but I I'm not interested in what life would be like without it at this point. I've made it this far, I feel like, and I'm just going to carry it with me. Um, there's a moment in my novel, Nothing to See Here, where one of the characters, the young girl, is saying she has this affliction, and she's like, I don't I don't know what I would do if it went away. You know, uh, how would we protect ourselves? And I, I feel kind of the same way about me, you know, is I don't know what I would do if it went away. And your books are very funny. So how do how do you explain, although there might not be an explanation because being human means you feel many things, but kind of the intersection of humor with these darker thoughts? I just think, I've, I just always gravitated towards humor, partly because when I first started writing, um, I was just really sensitive to trying to just not wanting to be overly serious like I didn't want to to pretend like these issues were were just like the end of the world like um and so humor was my way into it I just always have loved lightness and maybe that's the antidote to the darkness that I sometimes have in my head but I think it's more just like to my mind sadness and happiness are really permeable like they 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 bleed into each other all the time and so humor to me 
is always riding that edge of of laughing until you start crying because you realize that there's a truth to that absurdity. Um, so that's what I try to play with. I try to start off light because I'm not trying to get people to think I'm writing the great American novel or anything. It's it's light, you know. It's it's weird. It's silly and. What I can do is if I can hook them with that humor and get them used to absurdity, then little by little, if I can turn that lightness down just by degree, you know, the darkness starts to come slowly. And then you suddenly realize that it's much darker than you remembered it being in the room. And and that's just kind of the way that I work. You know, I I, I just like to ease people into that. Do you feel like ever when you are writing absurdity, that you have to create rules around it in, in that, you know, the reader has to understand what's absurd, but there also has to be something that's normal in there that, that you have to create boundaries around your absurd world so that there's kind of an endpoint to it. I think so. I mean, like I really love speculative fiction. I, I love fantasy, you know, but I don't write that. Um, and one of the reasons for me is that I, and so that I don't float away um, because it's so easy for me to just kind of fall into a hole. Um, I need anchors for me as a writer, not so much for the reader. I mean, I want the reader to be anchored too, but for me, I need anchors. And so for me, the anchor is the world that I live in. That's what keeps me tethered. And so what I do, and I, I think this is, I think George Saunders has talked about this, maybe, maybe not, but um, what I try to do is like, so if you know, like if you turn your house that you live in, if you turn it completely on its side, like everything comes crashing down, you immediately fall. Do you know what I mean? You're completely destabilized. Um, but but what I try to do is if I can just tilt it like seven degrees, um, you don't necessarily know that the floor is tilted. You just know something's not quite right, but you can't really give a name to it because when you look out the window, like everything still seems kind of right. And if I can just get that slight amount of, of tilt, um, then there's all the anchors that are always going to be there. The house is still the house. Everything's in its place. But as you walk or move around, there's this there's this absurdity or oddness to it. And, and that works best for me. Again, I'm just always trying to figure out easy ways into weirdness um, because the weirdness to me is really important and I want it to be strange and unusual and and unique, but, but I need those anchors. Yeah. So let's talk about nothing to see here because that is, you know, I think when you're talking about that seven degree tilt, that part of what you get from a seven degree tilt instead of like a whole upside down thing is that you get the humanity too because you're still looking at very real people, but then you maybe just have this one center piece that's a little bit weird, but you can almost exemplify or, or expand or accentuate the humanity around that. So in Nothing to See Here, you have your main character, Lillian, who's 28, and she had this best friend from boarding school named Madison, and they had um, they didn't have a falling out at all. They they remained best friends, but Lillian got kicked out of boarding school, and it was related to something that happened between her and Madison. And you know, years later, they're still in touch, and Lillian gets called by Madison, who's wealthy and married to a senator in Tennessee, who might be poised to have higher political aspirations. And she said, "Can you 
she basically summoned her to her mansion. And when she got there, she finds out that she is being asked to care for these two 10-year-old twins that were from her fa- the husband's first marriage, who sometimes spontaneously combust and catch on fire. Uh, so, like, that in particular, like, to me, I don't have, I don't think I have the talent or the larger imagination to be like, we now live in a world where people's emotions can can spontaneously present themselves in all these magical ways, and that's just the world. And, and as a result, you know, all these things have changed. Like, I, I can't build worlds like that, you know what I mean? And so... So what I just try to do is that there's this one oddity, there's this one strangeness, and a lot of ways if I can get that oddity into the story and surround it with enough normalcy, um, I can I can move. Do you know what I mean? I can get the reader to go with me, um, even though that initial idea is really strange. Um, and I don't. I think some of this might just come from having grown up not really reading literature, but but reading comic books and. You know, in comic books, like on the first panel, if Superman's fine, if you if you can't get with that, you know, you're you're in trouble. You just gotta accept it and move. And so that's what I try and do with my stories is like I give you this one weird thing and I'm like, if you if you just gotta you gotta accept that and if you can, I can get you to the next thing. Um and I've just always been the kind of reader that that is just kind of game. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of love those moments in a story where the author is like, you know, come with me, and I promise it'll it'll work out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, let's talk about Lillian. She came from a single mother home. She never knew her father. She was very smart and gifted and ended up getting a scholarship to an all-girls boarding school called Iron Mountain. And that's where she met Madison, who came from kind of the opposite, very privileged, three brothers. Like, she was destined to marry a senator. There wasn't really a question about that. And when they were at school, Madison gets basically gets caught with cocaine and is poised to get kicked out. Her dad comes to visit, invites Lillian's mom to come out for dinner. And during this dinner, basically he pays them off and says, here's $10,000 for you, the mom. And let's say that Lillian had the cocaine and not my daughter because it'll ruin my daughter's life in a way that it won't ruin your daughter's life. And basically the mom agrees to it and Lillian's gone. Yeah, so I mean, most of the book is about Lillian when she's 28, right? There's really just a couple of flashbacks, but so at 28, she's just kind of driftless and aimless. Like she, she, she believed she was destined for greatness, and it didn't happen. And and instead, she's just kind of slowly sinking in quicksand. But for me, those that early scene that you've just mentioned was what was really important for me to, to try to figure out, which was the the weirdness of the 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 relationship between these two women and that is that Lillian in order to get a scholarship to Iron Mountain this this really important private girls school she had to basically be exemplary in every way like superlative in ways that weren't human right she starts reading at 3 she's handling their finances at 8 she's learning 
poems from the Harlem Renaissance, and nobody even knows what she's talking about. She just has to be beyond what anyone else can imagine so that she can just get to this world of privilege. And Madison, who again is incredibly smart and creative and, and interesting, um, doesn't have to do any of that. It's just preordained that she's going to end up on that mountain. And so it was important for me to have two characters who both really care about each other and are similar in a lot of ways. Have to, In order to get to that mountain, it took a lot of different things. And then when we get to that moment where Lillian takes the fall, it just shows you that no matter how superlative Lillian was, all it took was one thing for people to believe, oh, yeah, that's her. That That's what she was always – that was what, what was always going to happen because of her circumstances and how easily it was for, for Madison to move on to whatever came next. Um, and so that that element of the relationship I just wanted to hit pretty quickly, which is that Lillian had to be superlative forever, and the minute she messed up, she got punished, and that kind of threw off her entire worldview. She just was like, why should I ever try again? Do you know what I mean? It would take so much work to get back to where that was, and it could go away just as quickly. Yeah, it's just interesting how, like, one event can derail your life. Yeah, I, I think about that a lot, like, one of my favorite novels is Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad, which I just, I read it. I've read it probably a, more than a dozen times. But um, one of the things I love about that book is that the characters are just so obsessed with trying to find that moment. Like, how did I get from point A to point B um, to the point where even their, their present life isn't functioning correctly because they can't stop trying to find that exact moment where it turned, you know? And, and I think that's, in some ways, Lillian isn't really looking back anymore because she knows the exact moment where it turned, but she still can't move forward. So I've read that you wrote this book basically in, in 10 days. I know that you think about books for a long time. So can you talk a little bit about what you were thinking about, you know, things that you were interested in when you wrote this? And then how did like Lillian and some of these characters come to life. And I, I think some of this began with a line from your first book. The, the, the spontaneous human combustion thing is just something I've written about a lot. My first book of stories has a character whose parents both spontaneously combusted. And then in The Family Thing, which was my first novel, the main character is an actress. And her job, one of her acting jobs, is to play a governess to a, a, a group of children who burst into flames. Um and it's one of those things where, you know, I was really young and I was trying to write a novel, which I'd never successfully done before. And I just felt like I had to put everything I had into that novel. And then once it got published, I was like, oh, I have to keep writing. And I put everything into it. So I just reached back and grabbed that those kids on fire and was like, I really want that. I need that. I need to do more with that. And so I just kind of grabbed it and started thinking about it and Lillian is a character I thought about a lot this this kind of um, this person kind of from the outside world thrust into this kind of insular world and, and being asked to kind of maintain order and I wanted to write about her and it's just as I started to think a lot of times before I ever write because I don't have a lot of time to write or I, maybe I do but I don't write very much um I knew I needed to kind of figure out how I was going to make this book work. And so 
I knew I wanted a small cast of characters. I knew that I wanted to have an isolated landscape, a setting. A lot of times my characters, um, I write books where characters barely ever even leave their house because I'm kind of scared of the outside world. So I don't really like going out in it. So I make my characters stay in a single spot. So I knew I was going to have this compressed um, set of characters, a compressed setting. And I knew that the story was going to take place over a single summer. So in my head, I just was like, this is all compression. You know, I need to read some short novels. I need to figure out how I can make the novel work in a very brief amount of time. And so instead of writing at the beginning, I was just mapping everything. I was like, okay, how do I work with compression? How do I make this smaller? And, um, and so then when I started writing, I was just already kind of trained to think about how to be as concise as possible, like not to let the story get away from me, to just keep that momentum. So it was really helpful. Um, so that when I finally sat down to write it, it was just, it was fast, you know, cause I just kind of, I wasn't allowing myself any other option, but what I had um, wanted it to be. And there were all these things like, you know, again, it's still improvisational. Like at some point, I think that the mom of the, twins was actually going to be alive and come back into the story and really complicate things because Lillian had kind of become their mother in some ways. And then I thought, oh, that's going to be 50, at least 50 pages to deal with that. And I just got, I was like, there's, I'm not even going to write that. And there was another subplot where they hire a paranormal investigator from North Carolina, him and his assistant to come visit the children. And, and uh, I thought, oh God, that's, that's 50 pages at least. And I just thought, no, 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 you, you can't do that. And so it was this kind of fun thing, like in the middle of writing to just be like, you can't have that. You got to, you got to work with what you have. And that happened again and again. And there were times where I was like, I'd really love to go back and show Madison and Lillian that high school year, or go back to some flashbacks. And I was like, no, you get that one scene. That's all you get. And you got to make it work. And um, it was really good for me. I think I work best with constraint. I like, I like knowing that um, I can't move very much. You know that 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 there's a kind of that I'm bound a little bit, and and instead of getting anxious about it, I like the feeling of realizing that there's still so much I can do within that constraint. When we meet Lillian, but right before she goes to care for the kids, she's working at grocery stores and has some odd jobs, and she has this one scene. It's basically clear that Lillian didn't interact with kids willingly. That's what it says. And yeah. she, she finds a lost kid at the Save-A-Lot where she works. And the the kid had, had lost its parent. And she's like, what the hell is going on? Like, what kind of parent is this that loses this kid? And she took the kid's hand and found the parent. And it was such an emotional moment for her, partly because she doesn't really want to interact with kids, but it just showed like how big her heart was and also how hard it was for her to hold all that emotion. Because when it was done, she stuck her head in the freezer for a little while and then, and then stole a ham, um, just to, I don't know, to mitigate those feelings. Can you talk just a little bit about writing that little scene and, and that part of her? Yeah, I mean, so much of Lillian's life is to pretend that she wants nothing, right? That that if because she can't, nobody, she can't get anything, you know, like um, all the things that she's wanted, she's not been able to get, and so she starts to live a life where she just pretends that she doesn't want anything, like not even food or air, and so that moment with that kid, where there's just obvious vulnerability and need. 
Lillian has to step up whether she wants to or not. And it's just a small little moment. You're just helping a lost kid. But for Lillian, that's a big deal. And when she has to let her go, she she has for just that brief instant a moment of what what like um, affection or love could feel like. To, to, that it's that it really is protecting someone who's vulnerable and when she feels that charge and of course the girl's going to go with the mom that's her mom um Lillian realizes that's it you know that's that's all she gets from that moment and so yeah she puts her head in the freezer section to just try to regulate her emotions to not get upset and then she steals because that's just what she does when she's when she feels bad like that if someone makes her feel emotion it makes her a little embarrassed and angry and so she has to do something to act out i understand lillian a lot i have to say yeah me too so let's talk about these two 10-year-old twins they basically were with their mother jane because jasper didn't really want any of them in his life jane dies and she's gone um, so they're they're just kind of rudderless kids besides and then there's the fact that they burst into flames that, you know, yeah. they could hurt others. They could hurt themselves. They are not quite normal. And yet they're just kids. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what I kept coming back to again and again is like it's not that I don't understand. Like I, Obviously, I understand why Jasper and Madison would want to protect their home and their life and their own child from this danger, from this fire, right? Like, I, it's not that I think they're, like, the worst people who ever lived. Like, that's a genuine concern. But but what I'm trying to figure out is, is then how do we protect the people that we love or that, are, that belong to us um, when there's that danger involved? And I think Lillian, for me, is is my answer. You know, you, you walk right into that fire and know you're going to get burned. Um but that's that's what it's going to take, you know, and and I just think, you know, I'm not I'm not excluding myself from this, but I just don't think that's what a lot of people are willing to do. Um, so, you know, it's weird with this book, like I know ultimately like there are some issues with Madison and Jasper and Carl, like but but it's it's not that I necessarily like them It's more as just I understand them <laughs> like I get it. Um, and that's kind of what I want with characters is I don't, I don't necessarily want to like my characters. I just want to, I just want to understand them. I just want them to make sense to me. You know, I first read it and I didn't know much about you. I hadn't listened to any interviews. And then when I learned more that you've sort of had this image with people spontaneously combusting, you know, my read of it was more like, wow, this guy had kids and he's like a little freaked out because you have to like keep them alive and take care of them. And they have so many emotions and tantrums that parenting is like putting out these fires all the time, which I think is, is definitely a way to read this book. Yeah. I mean, that's, that was, that's the huge turn for me is that I spent so much of my life thinking about what, like thinking that I had, because I had so much agitation inside of me, it just was always vibrating. And I kind of, at some point, wanted to just burst into flames to get rid of it. But just always thinking about, oh, bursting into flames, I'm going to do it, or I want to do it, or what would happen to me if if I do it. And then the minute I had kids, and, and you know, my son's, one of them really struggles with anxiety. He's 12. But, um, but then I saw this weird flip side of like, oh my God, like it, it's it's so much easier 
to worry about if you're going to burst into flames than to worry if the person you love is going to burst into flames. How do, how do you protect that kid? How do you protect that person? And so this book really, I don't think I would have written if I hadn't had kids. It was it was about that weird, strange moment where you're like, oh, I'm damaged, but like that's less important to me now that there's this person I have to protect. And so, yeah, I think that's that's what I was trying to work work with. Is, is just this is what parenting is. Lillian was so aware of it. She says at one point, I knew how much of myself I was going to unfairly place in them. They were me, unloved and fucked over. Yeah, I struggle with that a lot too of, of, of how much am I just placing myself into my kids? How much am I... Um, how much do I believe that my own genetics have made them? And then sometimes it's me easing back on that and realizing kind of how um, self-important that is to believe that these kids are just me. You know? And and that's always a startling moment when my kids are mysterious to me. And I'm like, oh, that's that's not me or my wife at all. That's 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 purely them. And honestly, that's super reassuring sometimes to say, oh, there's there's a mystery that I can't figure out about them. I think it relieves me of some of the blame. <laughs> you know, another big element of the book was kind of the the commentary on on what it can be like to live life when you have endless resources, when you have that kind of wealth, when you have a cook. Um, you know, from lines to you know when Lillian was there and she said, "I was finally, after twenty eight years, going to experience things the way they had been intended. No more knockoffs." To to just comments on like the kind of person you have to be to live with this sort of wealth and, and the way in which they shielded themselves from certain media or as Jasper's political aspirations climb, how they were able to hide the fact that their kids burst into flames. And I'm just wondering a little more about what you were thinking about that, that inequality. Yeah, I mean, I was just trying to think a lot about privilege and in some ways how seductive and easy it is to fall into it. Um, there's a moment where Lillian, just living in the mansion for a few days, she just stops wondering about who makes her bed. <laughs> you know, it's it's just done, you know, and, and that can be really easy. But still Lillian, when she looks at like the, the, the cook, the chef, Mary, you know, she's still thinking about like the weirdness of of being an employee of working and and Lillian can't quite figure out like do I have power over her or not I'm Madison's friend but I'm really an employee too um I think just trying to navigate that with privilege is really difficult and if you don't have it you are kind of constantly forced to think about how you fit inside of it whereas if you are privileged it just is you know <laughs> you you just have it and you don't really have to think about it or consider it all that much um, because everyone else is having to bend and twist to accommodate what, what you're doing. Um, and, and that becomes, I think, in the same way that Lillian, you know, one slip up because of her circumstances throws her out. Um, Jasper, you know, he's being vetted to be the secretary of state to possibly become the vice president or president. But he's already like cheated on his wife with an heiress and like abandoned his two kids. But like somehow that's not enough to disqualify him. Like because he is in such a high position of power, he can just get away with more. You know, it's just looser. Um, so 
I'm interested in Lillian, who's such a like a kind of agitated, uh, you know, strange person trying to navigate this world. Like, how can she not mess up again? One of the things that Lillian says near the end is you you took care of people by not letting them know how badly you wanted your life to be different. Can you talk about that? I don't know how to explain it other than to say, like, just because you got this beautiful thing that sustains you and makes you happy, it doesn't mean that your entire life, that's what you imagined your life would be. So much of life is a narrowing of options, and that sounds really depressing, but I kind of like it. I kind of like how you make a decision and the decisions available to you become a little more clear to see. Um, that's how I do writing, too. I narrow options so that I can see how to get to the place I need to get to. But that can be really difficult for the people that you love is that you can't really – you try not to let them understand that. You try to let them understand that they are the thing that you wanted your whole life um, so that you can together make your way to whatever comes next. Um, but I really – I don't believe that that's that that was the one option all along. Sometimes you wish that your life had turned out differently just so that you could have the same life but be a better person. Um, but you can't say that either. You know, a lot in there is about these things you think are curses, are gifts. I mean, it was horrible that Lillian got kicked out of school, but she ended up meeting these kids that she truly loves. And you had mentioned there's a point when Bessie, one of the twins, says to to Lillian, like, how else would we protect ourselves if we didn't catch on fire? I mean, they catch on fire when they're upset, they catch on fire when they're scared, but they can also protect themselves with these flames. They can they can do it at their own will. And when you think about what they've been through getting kicked out of their house, their mom died in, basically in front of them. Um, they're, they're just trying to navigate a world that has never had a door open for them. They even went to see a doctor who said that maybe the devil was inside. Yeah, they might have demonic possession. Um, yeah, I think, I think maybe just living with mental illness has made me try to consider th these things, which is that I don't, I don't think any of this, I don't think we're ever cured of anything. Do you know what I mean? I think what we're trying to do is figure out how to live with it, how, how, how to navigate our life not that we lose those things, but trying to figure out how to make them fit into the world that we want to live in. And that's what Bessie, you know, with the fire, it's not that those kids are, are not going to get, they're, they're, they're going to burst into flames. That's not going away. Um, so what you try to figure out is how to live with that in a way that, that you can sustain yourself and the people that you love. And, and I think it's just really foolish to imagine that we're ever cured of anything, that we ever leave behind the stuff that's happened to us. Um, really what we're trying to figure out is the tools for survival. And I guess also like the tools, I don't know, that break you open. Like how do you deal with that? Because at the end, you know, these kids made Lillian feel things. And, and she got to the point where she didn't have to steal hams and stick her head in a freezer, but it was still really hard for her. Yeah, I mean, again, she keeps saying, you know, this this thing that she's moving into, it's just another thing. And I don't know, I think one of my favorite novels as a kid was The Year, it is my favorite, I mean, it's The Yearling by Marjorie Canan Rawlings. And um, I loved it so much as a kid, but when I went back and read it as a adult, I was like, this is super dark. I mean, the basically the ending of the book is like the father tells Jody, he's like, 
you know, it just rips your guts out to watch your child go out into the world and get destroyed. But what else can you do but take it for your share and move on? And that's the line again and again is you take it for your share and move on. And I was like, what in the world? How did this resonate for me when I was eight? Um, but I think maybe even early on, that was something that I wanted to know. You know, I wanted to know. I didn't want anybody to sugarcoat it for me. I, I wanted to know definitely that pain was coming for me, but that I could take it for my share and move on. And and that's what I that's what I'm trying to do with my characters too. Is I'm not trying to get them out of the pain. I'm just trying to figure out how they can move through it. We've talked a lot about you know your own being a parent and kind of experiencing this on your own for yourself. And I'm, I'm wondering if you ever asked your parents about that with you. You know, you're talking about trying to mitigate things for your kids or, you know, realizing you have to let them out on their own and be their own person and what they inherited and what they didn't. But I'm sure your parents, you know, seeing you struggle when you were younger, have you asked them what it was like for them? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of complicated things there. One is just, I was always just really weird. And my parents were, you know, my, my dad was um, a captain of the football and wrestling team and uh, I think like class vice president. They were prom king and queen. My mom was a cheerleader. Um, and in my head, I have these images of them. They're just so beautiful, you know, and um, and my sister is really beautiful and accomplished and great. And um, I just always felt like there was something strange or, or deficient about me. And then as I got to know my parents more and more, I realized that they were just so weird. <laughs> they were so strange themselves, and they had just figured out in some ways how to hide it. Um, and so I don't think necessarily that, that it hurt them to watch me in these situations. I think it was more that they were just trying to figure out what I needed. And they were just – they let me do whatever I wanted kind of creatively. My mom and dad would work for hours to help me make stop-motion Star Wars films on a Super 8 camera. Like, they they were doing it. You know, they, they liked – watching that weirdness because it gave them a chance to 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 do it um and and it's also weird because when i was in high school really experiencing these these breakdowns um in the in where we lived in a really small town um and mental health was not something that anyone talked about ever you know my parents at that moment i mean really could have just ignored it they could have said this is just you know we don't know what to do but they they drove me to nashville every week to see a therapist they got me help you know they they tried to help me figure out how to move forward and and i and i don't know what i would have done if i hadn't had that and so a lot of times too when i'm writing about the vulnerability of children what i'm thinking of is how easily i could have disappeared from this world if my parents hadn't been there to just help me navigate that next step and if they hadn't been there I, I I don't know I can't imagine it can you share a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer yeah so um I, I'm going to read it's a very brief it's the opening paragraph of Shirley Jackson's we have always lived in the castle um which is which is my favorite book of all time it is it is the book that I love the most and the opening to me is just um just so so beautiful so it's um my name is mary Catherine blackwood i'm 18 years old and i live with my sister constance i have often thought that with any luck at all i could have been born a werewolf because the two middle fingers on both my hands are the same length but i've had to be content with what i had i dislike washing myself and dogs and noise 
I like my sister Constance and Richard Plantagenet and Amanita phalloides, the death cup mushroom. Everyone else in my family is dead. And when I read that, it just kind of blew me open. Like I was like, oh, God, the way that voice just immediately grabbed that introduction of 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 Maricat, I just was like, oh, God, I want to do that. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This is from Nothing to See Here, but um, when I first started thinking about the book, it was going to be Lillian as an as a much older woman, and the the voice originally was much more um, kind of resigned and muted and kind of sad a little bit, like looking back on this really big moment in her life, and and uh, and I just did not like it at all. I was like, why is she? She would not be sad. Like, why is she so muted? Like, why isn't she like angry still? Or why isn't she still like agitated? And so I tried to think about the character and, and it took me a while to get the voice the way I wanted it. And this was the paragraph where I finally was like, oh, this is what I want Lillian to sound like. And it's uh, the school, Iron Mountain Girls Preparatory School, offered one or two full scholarships each year to girls in the Valley who showed promise. And though it might be hard to believe now, I showed a fucking lot of promise. I had spent my childhood gritting my teeth, smashing everything to bits in the name of excellence. I taught myself to read at three, matching storybooks that came with records to the words the narrator spoke through the little speaker. When I was eight, my mother put me in charge of our finances, the weekly budgeting from the envelopes of cash she brought home. I made straight A's. I made other students cry at the spelling bee. I plagiarized scientific studies and dumbed them down just enough to win county science fairs. I memorized poems about Harlem and awkwardly recited them to my mom's boyfriends who thought I was some weird demon speaking in tongues. I played point guard on the boys' traveling basketball team because there wasn't one for girls. I made people in my town feel good, like I was something they could agree on, a sterling representative of this little backwoods county. I wasn't destined for greatness. I knew this, but I was figuring out how to steal it from someone stupid enough to relax their grip on it. And just once I got the propulsiveness of her voice and the kind of straightforwardness of of what she wanted, it was just so much fun to write. You know, I didn't I I, I didn't have to be serious or sad or plaintive. Like I was just going to barrel straight ahead. Where do you write? I write always in bed. Uh, no matter where I am, like at a residency or a hotel or at home, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm always, I, work, I have a nine to five job, I teach and I'm always at my desk and I, I hate it so much, I can't. Um, so when I get home, uh, it's being at a desk feels like work and being in bed feels like a treat. So I just am always slightly reclined as I write. What do you do or how do you get away from writing? It's really easy to get away from writing for me, partly because of my kids. I just go play with my kids because they always want me. So um, if I need to get away from writing, I just walk into the open space and they are there. Um, I go for walks. I shoot baskets, which is really great for me. It really helps me. A lot of times what I'm trying to do is not so much get away from writing as just try to find a space where I can do both at once. I can do something, but also be thinking. Um, so, you know, really, I just need to be away from the computer and and I'm away from writing, you know. And the kids, they have their own weird imaginative worlds that they want me to participate in. So then it becomes really easy. I can't think about my stories when I'm trying to help them write their own. 
Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? So there's only two people that read my work ever. Like I have all of my friends are writers, but I just, we just don't share work. I just feel like it's an imposition. <laughs> I don't like, I don't like making people read my work and I don't really like sharing it. Um, it's private for me. And so the only people that ever read my work before I turn it in is my agent, Julie Bearer, and my wife, Leanne, and they know me better than anybody else. And so they're the two voices that matter. And really what I do with Julie, my agent, this has worked every time is I send her the first 50 pages of a book and I say, can I keep going? And if she says yes, then I go and I don't look back. And if she says no, then I stop. Right. You know, so she is the one who tells me what to do. And then Leanne is the one who knows me so well that when she sees what I've done, she knows me well enough to know what I'm trying to do and she can help me figure that out. And that's it. They're the only two. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, I mean, I, I deal with rejection, I think, the same way that I deal with success, which is just that at the core of it, I just think it's dumb luck, <laughs> you know? So I just accept it. I accept rejection. It it doesn't get me down. Um, I just make more stuff. Like, I don't know what else you can do with rejection if you want to write except keep going. And so, I mean, maybe you interrogate yourself for why it got rejected, but I don't. I don't really do that. I just think... It's dumb luck when somebody takes something, and it's dumb luck when it gets rejected. If you get it to a certain level, you're just trying to play the odds, and the only way to do that is to just make more stuff. What is your favorite word? Weird. I think I've said it about 70 times in this interview. Um, it's just a catch-all for me. You know, it's this, it's an adjective that feels like the word that I say for what I love the most, right? Strange or extraordinary, that's weird. I, that's... And um, I think my students have started to learn this, that if I say something in their work is weird, that makes them super happy. They know that's 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 the nicest I'm going to be. Well, thank you so much. I so appreciate um, you taking the time to have this conversation. Oh, this is really fun. I, I love the questions that you had were really interesting and, and made me think about the book in ways I, I hadn't been uh, in interviews. So thank you so much. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Kevin Wilson, author of Nothing to See Here. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with author of A Visit to the Goon Squad and Manhattan Beach, Jennifer Egan, a writer whose work Kevin mentioned on this episode. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 260 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Some clips from this interview that patrons will receive as extras include a writing tip from Kevin Wilson and nearly 15 more minutes from last week's guest, Jenny O'Phil. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Chuck Palahniuk, Anne Enright, Deb Olin Unferth, and Anna Solomon. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. 
I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.